Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. I am so excited to have Jimmy Costas on the podcast. Jimmy has served 22 years as a school leader, and he currently serves as an adjunct professor at Drake University, teaching a graduate course on educational leadership. Jimmy's also a consultant, blogger, speaker, leadership coach, and author of four books, including What Connected Educators Do Differently, Start Right Now, Teach and Lead for Excellence, Culturize Every Student, Every Day, Whatever It Takes, and his latest release, Stop Right Now, 39 Stops to Making Schools Better. Jimmy, thank you so much for being on the program today. Josh, thank you so much. As you know, the show is centered on leadership development, and I would love to hear your personal leadership journey and how you went from the classroom to an administrator. Well, Josh, a couple things. You know, First of all, I never envisioned myself being an educator. Like When I went into this role, that wasn't what I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to grow up someday to be a teacher. Actually, I always wanted to be a police officer when I was a kid, and uh, then I wanted to be an actor. Well, I wanted to be a stuntman, and then... Uh, and then I, I also realized at some point that I kind of wanted to own my own business. My parents owned a restaurant, they owned theaters, they were different entrepreneurs, even though they weren't formally educated, right? They were always seeking a better life for themselves, trying to create opportunities for their children to hopefully be educated someday because they realized that that, that was the key to having the quality of life that they always wanted, right? So when they you know made the decision to leave school and they weren't you know formally educated, it left them in a position that, you know, obviously they knew that the manual labor was really going to be how they were going to spend the rest of their lives working really hard to be able to provide that for, for their children. So, so that was a couple of things my parents always uh, instilled in us, right? The value of a hard work ethic, mm-hmm. the value of building community. And these are things, obviously, that I tried to take into account as I, as I grew older and, and tried to decide, you know, what I wanted to do. But Fortunately, I didn't have a good school experience, so that kind of limited my options in terms of what I would be able to do. Actually, I didn't want to go to college. I barely made it through high school. I made the decision to go ahead and go to college only just because that's what my parents wanted me to do, and I didn't want to disappoint them, but I never was invested, right? I just went and kind of went through the motions and eventually dropped out not once but twice, and then during the process, I actually took on a job and and decided this was going to be my life, that I would just work, right, because I always loved to work. And and I did that for a year, and I was very good at it. It was a sales position. I was successful at it. And then during that process, something happened in terms of just watching what was happening. As, you know, my mentor who kind of helped me in, in that role and watching a, a 50-year-old gentleman lose his job because a young 19-year-old kid was out selling him, right? And just to show you how cutthroat sales was, it just reminded me that, is that going to be me when I'm 50, right? With a kid and going into college, a kid in high school, a kid in middle school, and then now what? And so I realized at that point that perhaps that was the importance of an education because he was always encouraged to go back to school where the boss boss was more about, hey, work more, work more, you can make more money and really wasn't interested in me going back to school because he saw that as, you know, me doing something else rather than making money for him. So that was when I made the decision to actually go back to college and, and recommit to school. And that was kind of the began the journey. And then during that process, I did go into bilingual education initially, uh, thinking that that might be an avenue. I became a teaching, a TA, teaching the course and so forth. But I really still had that craving for law enforcement. So I tried to get into the FBI for a couple of years, and I'd actually completed all the exams, passed all the exams, and was actually waiting for my date to go to Quantico to become an official FBI agent. And then I failed my physical because of my eyesight. 
that's when I made the decision uh, to go back to grad school. And then during that time, I took a volunteer position at elementary school and I just fell in love with it. And that's where I kind of went down that path to become a teacher and started my career in Milwaukee Public School. So that was kind of the journey. I was inspired, obviously, by my assistant principal, as you read in the book, that just inspired me to want to be able to give back to kids in that manner. But it was also the teacher, her name was Barb Heider, who was the cooperating teacher. I was well, not the cooperating teacher, but the, the teacher at the ESL program. And then when I went into teaching and decided to go that route to get my master's in art and teaching, you know, I was blessed again with just some really strong uh, cooperating teachers, Nancy Patient and Nancy Duffner, who really supported me and, and really believed in me. And, and that inspired me, right, to want to go mm-hmm. become a teacher. You talked about it before. The AP was the person that you looked up to. But what was kind of the defining moment that you decided, I want to become an administrator? Yeah, I think in the back of my mind, Josh, I always thought leadership roles and leadership positions were something that always intrigued me and something that I was always interested in. You know, at that time, obviously, you're you're young, uh, you get married, you have a child, and you make the decision that you move to Milwaukee, right? That's where we ended up moving to and, and feeling that we don't know anybody. And I didn't feel comfortable just leaving our child with somebody. So I made the decision, you know what, my wife will be a stay-at-home mom. I'll go to work and, and try to support. But at the time, if you think about it, you become a teacher that, I mean, this is 1991, you know, so, you know, I'm making $22,000 a year for one person, right? So you'd split that into two couples. That's, you know, ten five a year. I mean, you're basically still in poverty, right? You're trying to just make the rent payment, live paycheck to paycheck. And so... Part of the motivation, honestly, was, you know, we got to make some more income if we're going to if we're going to make the decision that it's important to us that we raise our children and not be dropping off at child care, being a, you know, in a bigger, larger city. We're both from Iowa, smaller towns, so we just weren't used to that. So so that was part of the motivation, but also because I had an assistant principal. His name was Larry Leonard, and he just saw something in me as well. Right. And, and encouraged me to pursue that. So I had already gone to school for a long time, and I wasn't really excited about going right back, but I basically took one semester off in that first year of teaching and then went right back to school into an ed leadership program. And that was at Cardinal Stritch College in Milwaukee. And again, had a wonderful mentor there. Her name was Nancy Blair. And, and I had gone to her and said, hey, you know, I really want to you know, work with one of the best leaders. Who would you encourage me to work for? if I was going to have a mentor in this program, she gave me a couple names and just really lucky. I just feel like I've always been blessed. Like I've always been landed right in the lap of somebody who was, you know, very inspiring very motivating, good leaders. So I was had really good mentors. And then just real quick, just on a side note, and just because I, I want to share this, I just thought of this is that at the time I'd actually asked her about another principal that I could go to visit a school and the school she picked was actually Lincolnshire uh, where Rick DeFore was. Mm-hmm. And I remember reaching out to him, you know, you got to remember I'm 20, you know, 23 years old here. And he was so welcoming. And you know, I went to visit his school. And I mean, here's a guy who's tremendously busy, you know, a principal of a really large high school, very successful and, and took the time for me. And, and I just never forgotten that. Like that just reminded me again, the importance of people who are successful, who give their time to other people who are, you know, who was I, you know, just some young guy who wanted to be a, a teacher, maybe someday be an administrator. And I've just never forgotten that. And that just goes to show you the type of leader and character that he was. And of course, on, you know, obviously he goes on to do, you know, great things, Solution Tree and the PLC and all that. And so it was just a really sad, you know, moment for me to, to see him pass here this past year. And then, of course, his wife, Becky, falling right after that. And that whole deal is just really, really sad. But to me, that was leadership, right? Somebody who took the time. So I've always tried to remember that, right? To take time to support others who are seeking that type of position. 
and you've mentioned it twice now in the business world and the education world, it looks like you really sought after people that were going to be your mentors. Why did you go through that process? You know, it's funny because even today, I still have really good friends that are all older than me that are retired, that maybe they're successful businessmen, they're successful educators who have retired. I still surround myself with people who have a lot more wisdom, who, you know, I seek advice from. These are people, you know, as a young administrator, because part of the reason is, Josh, I became a principal when I was 26 years old. And so I've always sought people who had already been in the role for a while, who had done, you know, the position of leadership, whatever, regardless of what field that was in. So I've always just sought that. And uh, even as uh, as a young kid, I remember my parents often, you know, encourage us and ask others to kind of talk to us, especially me, because I was having so many struggles in school. You know, I didn't want to be in school. I was getting in trouble. I was having you know, all sorts of issues. And so my parents were always trying to, you know, have other people, whether it was somebody from the church or someone from a family member or a lot of for us, you know, it was my uncles and people that they were trying to surround us with to get us kind of on the straight and narrow, I guess, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I think that was just always part of it. And even as a father, you know, even with my own children, I always tried to find other adults that they could talk to, right? So it wouldn't always have to be their parents. Because you know how that is, you know, sometimes as parents, you know, we don't know anything, or maybe we just kind of come across as nagging. And it was always important to me, you know, I'd go to, you know, somebody I respected, whether it was another colleague of mine or another principal or my AD in my school and say, hey, you know, can you talk to AJ's, you know, struggling a little bit and those types of things. So just something I think is very valuable. It kind of goes back to the whole, you know, that whole mindset of it's a village to raise a child. And, you know, I don't think, you know, leadership is no different really to me than parenting, right? Like, mm -hmm. like we never get this job figured out, right? I don't care how long you've been a parent. There's always things that are going to come across your way that you just don't even know what to do with it, how to deal with it, how to even respond to it. There's so many parallels in that. So I've just kind of tried to live that personal life in parallel with my professional life and try to take some of the same lessons and, and try to, you know, cross over in both those arenas. And what was your biggest misconception as you moved from being a classroom teacher to an administrator? The principals never did anything. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you always wonder, what is it they do, right? No, I think what I think you know, obviously it was very naive. Just, I think a lot of us are it's just like anything, right? If you've never held a position, you don't really know what it's like until you've held it. Mm -hmm. And I'm always really careful about that. Even like in the superintendent role, right? I've never been a superintendent. So sure. I have my lens as a high school principal and I could look at it and say, well, I would do this. I would do that. I think it's just different once you're in that role. It's just, there's just so many things that you don't even understand about the role and it's no different in any position, right? Unless you actually live that role, even as a principal, you know, I remember as an assistant principal thinking and realizing, you know, maybe there were things that I would do differently. But until I sat in that chair and realized that the buck kind of stops here, it just changes everything. There's an immense amount of pressure on you to feel like you, you always want to do the right thing. And, and yet the reality, there is a lot of political uh, issues and there's a lot of decisions that are have to go into play. And, and you're just trying to take in so many different perspectives and so much different feedback. But ultimately, you have to make the decision. And sometimes those decisions aren't popular. Sometimes those positions or those decisions ends up, you know, costing somebody employment or making a decision about whether somebody passes or graduates or doesn't graduate or, you know, all these different things that come into play. So I think, you know, again, just thinking that uh, the job was probably easier than I thought and not really recognizing how difficult the job really was until you actually got into it. And then the other thing I would say is this, even when you get into it, you go into it, you know, believing that you can make all these changes that you could 
do all this stuff, right? And and that you'll make it happen, right? Just because you're the principal now. So you can do whatever you want, make decisions and make things happen. And it doesn't work that way, right? You still have to have the skill set to how do you build a community of leaders who are invested in that vision. Again, these are great a number of skill sets in terms of listening and processing and and trying to build a team and and taking these decisions. And at the same time, having to build a team to build their skill sets, right? To inspire them to want to be leaders. So there's just so many different components to leadership, which is what I love about it. But uh, it is very complex. I think one of the biggest mistakes a lot of young administrators make, and I know I made that, was you go into the position and you think you have to do everything, right? Like you're supposed to have all the answers. And I remember 26 running around like, oh, I'll do this. I'll take care of that. Oh, I got that. And, you know, it kind of impacts your ego a little bit because you think, oh, well, they, oh, you know, he's got so much energy. He's so great. He's so visible. He just gets things done. He's so organized. And you start believing all this stuff. You think you're actually better than you actually really are <laughs> until you make a decision that somebody doesn't like and then they're angry at you and you realize, wait a second. Yesterday, I was this really great administrator, and today, I, you know, I'm not a very good administrator. And so that's the, how complex it is. And it's really easy to get wounded in this role. It's really easy to take things personally. And then the hard part is you can eventually fall into the trap of feeling like not appreciated, feeling like no matter what you do, it doesn't matter because someone's always going to be upset at you. You can fall into the trap of thinking some days, you know what, I'm not sure what I'm doing actually makes a difference or... I'm, this isn't what I signed up for, or, or whatever those feelings and doubts are getting inside your head, and it starts making it really complex, right? And and so these are some of the things we just kind of, you know, as I evolved and matured in the role of a leader, I started figuring out. But the reality is it takes some time because you're kind of naive when you go into it. And the problem, Josh, today, what I'm seeing is there's just such an emphasis on school leadership with with all the things that have happened here in the last really, let's just say 15 to 20 years, starting with No Child Left Behind, now to ESSA, the accountability factor and how easy it is for organizations, especially schools in this case, or school districts to blame a superintendent or to blame a principal when the school isn't quote unquote successful, right? Uh, there are report cards coming out, people are labeling schools, failing schools, et cetera. And I just think this just puts so much of a burden on school and district leaders. It is so unfair as though somehow one person is supposed to walk in and do this job all by themselves. And and that's the reality. And that's also at the same time, the part that, in my opinion, just sets us all up, right? Our profession. Mm -hmm. And so I try to really encourage teachers to, to think about what are you doing specifically to help your principal be great, right? I mean, do you want your principal to be great or not? Because if he is or she is, guess what? then you're probably going to have a great school. But unfortunately, our principals go into it. There's just so much coming at them and they lose credibility really quickly. And it's really unfair to them. It really is. And I, it's the same thing I tell with principals. It's not fair to a teacher to walk in and think that that teacher is going to be able to come in out of school and be able to navigate the complexities of what it means to be a school teacher today. All the challenges that they're dealing with in a classroom, and we all know what those are and we can name them here all day long. But the idea is, what are the supports that we're providing our teachers, our teacher librarians, our school nurses, our, our bus drivers, our custodians? I mean, everybody in the organization is a teacher. If they want to work with kids and they have a heart and they're there to invest and really truly be champions for kids, then I'll take all the help I can get. But that's how complex leadership is. And in my opinion, you know, everyone is a leader. And in your administrative experience, which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop? Well, there's lots of them, but I'm going to say this one because I'm just thinking of a situation. But I think one of the most difficult 
skill sets to develop is how to have difficult conversations with people who are underperforming in their work, right? Whether it's a student underperforming in the classroom or a staff member underperforming in their work every day, that is really challenging because that takes a tremendous skill set. Honestly, early on, I, you know, I tried to have that conversation and then I got beat up a little bit, right? I got wounded. I backed off, right? Because I thought, oh, geez, because think about it. We're taught, oh, it's really important to have a really strong, healthy culture. Well, we all know that going into the work, into the environment, into the profession of school leadership or district leadership. But once you're in, how do you, how do you maintain that and yet hold people to a high standard, right? That's how difficult that is. And, and so the skill set of how to navigate a very difficult conversation without hurting your culture. And in the beginning, um, I avoided it because I thought it was hurting my culture. And then obviously later on, as you, again, get better and figure things out a little bit, you realize as you look back, it was actually hurting my culture when I wasn't having the conversation. Because you think when you do that people are going to go out and share with other people. And, and of course, it's just one side of the story, right? It's not like you can go share the conversation because you have to maintain confidentiality. You have to be professional. That's what's really hard. So how do you build those relationships that become trusting relationships? So, you know, after difficult conversations, people aren't out there gossiping or embellishing or changing the story or, you know, all these things that happen. And and the reality is sometimes those stories are from their perspective. They actually do believe that that's how it happened. Right. So how do you become a transparent leader? Right. And so yet at the same time, maintain the confidentiality and the manage people with dignity and all those types of things. But again, it's difficult, right? Because again, if you're a school leader and you believe there are people who are some days, you kind of get the feeling they're intentionally don't like children, right? Like they're hurting children. And, and if you're very passionate about kids, that can begin to, you can begin to resent that a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And take that kind of personally. And want to go to the defense of a child or even sometimes the defense of a staff, defense of a staff member. But that is what I would say would be the hardest skill set to have to develop and people avoid it. And to remember that the only way you can get better at it is you got to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. So one thing I often share Josh's people is today now in the work I do is to try to teach people how to have an exit strategy. Right. If you can have an exit strategy, which means I can actually go in and have the conversation knowing that if it doesn't go the way I want it to go. I have a way out, right? And to me, that way out is just being very sincere and apologizing, you know, and being able to say, hey, Josh, I am so sorry that this is not, this was not my intent to upset you. And obviously I have. If possible, I'd just like an opportunity to start over because that was not my intent to hurt your feelings or upset you. And obviously I have. So, you know, can we maybe just regroup and have this conversation again tomorrow? Just to own it, right? To be able to say, I don't, just because I'm the principal doesn't mean I have all the answers or I have all the skill sets that are needed. I'm, I'm trying to get better just like you are. But I think sincerity and genuineness and those types of conversations goes a long ways, I think. For our aspiring leaders who may not have an actual leadership position, what are some other ways that they can make an immediate impact on their campus? Yes, I always go to the, to the John Wooden quote that says, the most important leadership tool we have is our own personal example. So again, number one is we lead by example. I mean, that's the first responsibility we have that leadership recognizes that, hey, I can't ask other people to do what I'm not willing to do myself. So if I'm a classroom teacher, you know, I'm not going to ask my kids to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. If I'm a principal, I'm not going to ask my teachers to do something I'm not willing to do myself. So it comes back to the idea, 
you know, model the behaviors that you want to see repeated. That's the first thing I'll say. Second thing is to begin to recognize your, your, your own talents and your own strengths, right? Everybody has them and everybody has the capacity to lead. So I do encourage people to begin to see themselves as a leader, right? So for example, if I were to say to you, Josh, hey, name me one leader that you know of that you, you, know, you have in high regard that you would want to emulate, you would begin to think through that and then you would give me some name. Mm -hmm. But what never happens, very rarely I should say happens, is that you don't identify yourself as a leader. There's just something that we don't look at ourselves as leaders, right? And we are. And I think people have to understand that I think our children see our teachers as leaders. How do you begin to identify your own skill sets? And then how do you begin to use those skill sets for the greater good, to help the profession, to help your colleagues, to help your principals and your superintendents? So how can you use your talents to help the organization or to help your team or to help the greater good? And then the next step is, you know, seek those leadership opportunities, right? Ask permission to be able to be a part of some committee, maybe go to a conference. Maybe it's, hey, I'd like to present at our next staff meeting. Maybe it's a grade level uh, team leader or a department chair team leader. There's all these different positions in leadership. But again, to me, it always goes back to leading by example. In other words, become the leader that others want to emulate, that others see and say, hey, that's a leader by the way they carry themselves, conduct themselves, by their positivity, by the way they respond and to kids and the staff in a very supporting and caring and loving way. And so that's, to me, the modeling piece. But it really is, again, just investing in seeing yourself as a leader. And I think that's most of what we need to begin to do and just identify that, that others see you a certain way and, and that we have responsibility to make sure that understand that, you know, sometimes all eyes are on, especially the eyes of the children. What is one initiative you implemented on your campus that you're extremely proud of? Well, I had three campuses, but I think one I'm, you know, I've always been pretty proud of is, you know, back in 2005, six, I was always blessed. I was only in three districts and in every district I seemed to be in, I always felt like we had strong student leadership. So one thing I try to work with principals today, Josh, is to remind them like you have a responsibility and I believe that the best cultures identify three areas that they need to quickly build capacity. And that is, first of all, your office team, right? Because I still think the main office is the hub of where everything starts in terms of setting the tone for the day, how parents are greeted, how staff members feel when they walk in the main office, how our children are treated in loving ways. And these are hubs, right, in our schools. So that's the first team. And then the second team is your teacher leadership team, right? Your staff leadership team. So who is a part of that? How do you utilize the talents and strengths, again, of your organization or the people in your organization, I should say, to help you lead? We have to get past this idea that I can lead all by myself. Well, you can, but you can lead a lot more effectively and probably for a longer time and enjoy it more and actually build a community of leaders if you're intentional in building the capacity of others and developing their skill sets. So in order to do that, you need to have processes and frameworks and systems into place and be able to articulate and communicate and then be able to explain why you're doing what you're doing because they have to understand the reason behind why they're doing what they're doing or why you're asking them to do the things you're asking them to do. And again, these are skill sets in leadership. And then the third part is, I think the one we often forget and I know I did, is the failure to develop a very strong student leadership team. 
we often forget student agency and the voice and the importance of that. And again, not necessarily with bad intentions, it's just sometimes we don't think we have the time or we didn't even think about that or, or because we're the adults, we know better or this, is, or this is what I'm paid to do and I should be able to figure these things out by myself and I don't want to bother people and you know, all these reasons again, right? And so the idea is to be sincere and really intentional how you build your capacity. Because again, you've got students walking the halls every day that have so many talents and strengths. So what I saw in the first three schools I was in, I felt like we always had a strong leadership team, but usually even today when I go into schools, it's the form of some sort of student government, right? Student council, student government. And depending on the size of your school, it's still gonna be a really small portion of your student body. So like for me, my last school, we had you know almost 1600 kids, and yet the student council team is made up of about 40 kids. So when you look at the, the officers and the representatives and all that kind of stuff, you've got like 40 students that are really leading student leadership activities in your school, whether it's fundraisers or you're, you're doing you know, activities for the school or you're doing things for homecoming or you're doing things where uh, you're volunteering or whatever happens to be the case, right? So, but how do you then grow that, right? How do you make it a more heterogeneous group of students and more importantly, what happened to all the kids that tried to be in a leadership position and did not get voted in? So what happens to them, right? So if there's no place for them to go, you now have these students that are walking your hallways who aspired for leadership roles and didn't get elected or voted in. And now there's really no place for them unless you're really intentional. So, so back in 2005, six, at that time, our, our, one of our social studies teacher who did our student government and student council, her name was Kathy Ahrens, and her and I had had this conversation. And one of the things I've always appreciated about her and will always appreciate is that, you know, her and I had this conversation. Like, you know, how can we take those 40 kids and multiply that into 140 kids or 240 kids, right? And again, these aren't perfect systems. You know, there are no perfect systems. But when you're intentional, you can create more opportunities for more kids. You create more opportunities for more staff members. And so, Again, if you think of the book Culturize, you know, one of my core principles is become a merchant of hope, which means believe that everybody in the organization wants to be great and more importantly, provide the opportunity for everybody to leave their legacy. Then how do you begin to do that? So you have to be really intentional in trying to figure that out. RSVP, Raising Student Voice and Participation, uh, originated back in Bettendorf in 2005-06. And it's something we're very proud of. And uh, at that time, went on to really train not only the surrounding schools in our in our conference in fact every conference because we would host a training in our school for all the surrounding schools but obviously we we would also train at the state level uh, we came to chicago a few times the lead conference and just really proud of the number of students that were involved in that because you didn't have to be elected anybody could be a part of that as long as you wanted to uh, be invested in terms of trying to do good things for your school and then build a, a, a framework, a student leadership framework where everybody in the school, every child had a voice, right? And a way to collect that information and, re, and then communicate back to the student body and then make change happen in your school. And that was always important to me that kids understood that they could be the change and that it was their school and that it was our job as the adults to, to teach them processes and help them understand how to navigate that, that complex process of how to how do you make change happen? How do you make great things happen in your school? Well, you brought up your book, Culturize, which I'm so glad you did because it's one of my personal favorites. For those who haven't had the opportunity to read Culturize, can you give a quick synopsis for our aspiring leaders? Yeah, it's a book that I wrote because it really was to me, first of all, identifying a couple things. Number one, that 
to be able to see that everyone in the organization is a leader, right? That it doesn't matter what your role is, we all have this capacity to lead. And so when we have a staff of so many people who have all these talents and strengths, then why is it that we still struggle sometimes in schools? And, and, and more importantly, why is the perception sometimes by others that, that we're not successful? And that really bothers me because the reality of it is, I mean, when someone talks to me about a failing school, it's hard to swallow because, again, these are judgments that are made typically by people that have never been in our schools, right? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of go back and forth in that in the sense that in one way it kind of hurts me because I think, well, that's so unfair, right? Because, you know, again, we're making those judgments based on maybe a situation or a demographic population or – and I get it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't strive – that we can't be better because we can but failing, geez, that's that's a pretty strong word to say that schools are failing our kids. I just don't I don't buy it. And so but what I do know is that we then have to do something about that. Right. If these are some perceptions by some. And I think we have to do more to tell our story. And so so culturize is really a little bit of a play on the words, Josh. It's it's about seeing the culture of our organizations, not through our eyes, which means not through my eyes as a building principal but through the eyes of the students, through the eyes of the staff, through the eyes of the parents, through the eyes of the community. And so how do you create an environment where people have hope and faith and believe that great things happen inside that school and can happen inside that school? So honestly, it's really a book about hope and a book about faith, right? And at the same time, hopefully given some practical ways to how to then create this environment where everybody wants to be a part of it. And do we believe as the adults, when we walk into school every day, do we believe that we truly can inspire others to be more and do more than they ever thought possible? And it goes back to kind of that modeling, because again, I think we as the adults expect kids to strive for greatness. And I think sometimes we as adults aren't modeling that, like we're hesitating. And what happens over time is we kind of get stuck and we kind of start losing a little bit of the hope and a little bit of that faith and we kind of over time fall back to average. And I don't believe any educator wants to be average. You know, I always say when you sat in that interview chair, you said you wanted to be great. You wanted to do great things for kids. And the question is, do you still feel the same way today? And if not, what are you going to do about it? And so that's how do you go back there and find that passion and that energy and that belief. And that's why I wrote Culturize is to give people hope and to try to remind them that things can be better and that everybody in the organization deserves an opportunity to leave their legacy. And so that book is based on four core principles, and it's a framework, it's a foundation, it's how to take your school from average and to strive for excellence. And so those four core principles are champion for kids, expect excellence, carry the banner, and be a merchant of hope. And that's kind of the the framework of the book, and it kind of takes people through a journey of some storytelling, but also I believe some very practical ways on how to have make an immediate impact moving your organization from average to excellence. And for our veteran leaders, I know that sometimes they may feel something like leadership burnout. You always seem to have great success throughout your career. What was kind of your secret to get through tough times? Well, uh, Josh, that's not exactly true. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think we all, uh, you know, that's where I have a lot of empathy today for our school leaders. I mean, it may appear that way, Josh, but honestly, I mean, even today, you know, obviously I served 22 years. Even now, I've been out of it for two and a half years. There are things I would go back and do differently. Even though I felt like, again, as I was maturing and evolving in the role of a principal, I was getting better because I was surrounded by really good people. 
And if you're open to wanting to get better, then there's no reason why you shouldn't get better, right? So in all honesty, I tell people all the time, I want my first 12 years back. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, hmm. you know, I just did the best I could. And yet sometimes that isn't good enough or you think it isn't good enough. So there are a lot of things I would do so much differently between year one and year 12. And then in that 13th year, I felt like I started getting a lot better. And I felt even as I left the profession here two and a half years ago, I was just starting to feel really good about my work. I was energized. I felt really good about the work that we were doing. I felt energized every day. I mean, that that was the, probably the one consistency that even though there were moments I was doubting myself in the role I was work I was doing, I still always walked in with the belief that I could make a difference. I walked in with a sense of energy every day and a belief that I could I could make things happen. And so that never wavered. But certainly in private, did I doubt? Yes, all the time. There were moments that I was wondering, what am I doing here? And I'm not sure I can do this, right? And so you start to question yourself. So the thing is, again, I think the key is to, is to recognize if you can begin to see yourself as a community builder, and build a community of leaders that all aspire to create this environment where everybody can be a part of something great. And that's, I think that's the key, right? Mm -hmm. you, you need to be able to walk in and, and the job has to be enjoyable. It has to be, just become a way of life and not a burden that you see it as a job. And to me, the only way that happens is you got to surround yourself with people who all feel the same way. Because again, if you can go to work every day and enjoy the work you do, knowing that there's challenges, knowing that there's going to be things that, that come up, but when you're surrounded by people and you and you begin to see it as, hey, you know what? Here's an opportunity to build a relationship I never had before. Or, you know, I wouldn't give this up for anything because I love every day going, knowing I go into work that Josh and I are going to be right there battling it out, trying to figure this out, right? And so I think most of it is right here in our head. We can just begin to really, first of all, quit taking things so personally, quit making it about us because it's not about us and see yourself truly as a servant leader and recognize that people who behave a certain way or respond a certain way just lack a skill set, that they don't have that skill set. And if we don't get better at modeling the skill set, in other words, modeling those behaviors again that we want to see repeated, then how can we expect others to ever get better if we ourselves aren't willing to model those skill sets? So how do we help other people and build those relationships so they begin to trust and we can begin to work together? But And that's just how I began to change my perspective on leadership. Again, not saying there weren't days that I still didn't screw it up because we will. Those things I think usually happen when people get tired and get frustrated, right? Because you care so darn much, right? You want, you know, when you want to save a kid and, and you just keep feeling like they just keep sabotaging it every day, it just, it burns you because you're thinking, what are you doing? You have so much potential. It's just like, they're just throwing it away and it just kills you inside, right? Mm -hmm. and those are moments you get weak and you say things and do things that, it's like being a parent, right? It's the same thing you do as a parent. You just love them so much. You just, you want to strangle them and then you just want to hug them, right? You just, because you, you like, what are you doing? And so that's what I, you know, I just love about the work is just being able to believe that you can still make that difference. Because it only takes one success story a year. I tell people all the time, right? You may get one success story a year. That's enough to jack you up to get you to go back next year. But sometimes you get lucky and you get that, you get that story that stays with you the rest of your life. And that's all you ever need because it gives you the hope and faith that, that you can do it again and that you can be a champion for a kid. No, that's very true. So in addition to your admin position, now you speak at conferences, you're an author, you're very active on social media. How did you find your voice beyond your district? 
Yeah, that goes back to about 2000, uh, the beginning of 2011 or so. I had an opportunity to hear a gentleman by the name of Scott McLeod at that time talk. And just in terms of this whole idea of, you know, the impact of technology in our schools, you know, how can we can move our schools one to one? How is we how are we as leaders modeling that movement? Right. In terms of how invested were we in that? And so that was the very first time. And then I still remember sitting at a conference and there was another principal there at the time who's actually a good friend of mine today. His name is Jim Witchman. And, you know, he's trying to talk to me about this thing called Twitter. And I really have no interest in it. Right. But I'm just kind of doing it because he's telling me to do it. And, and I don't even understand what he's telling me anyway. And he's showing <laughs> me. And, you know, six months later, I'm, I don't even know my password. Right. Like I, I'm not really invested in this. But, you know, at the time we were looking at going to one to one as well. And I kind of remember that. Right. What Scott had shared. And then realize, you know what, Jimmy, you're the guy that talks all the time about don't ask others to do what you're not willing to do yourself. So I felt kind of hypocritical at the time. And so made the decision to go ahead and get more invested in, in social media, right? So like a lot of people, I just went to my kids and asked them, hey, so help me understand. This. So how does this thing work, right? Show me, you know, how do you send a tweet and all that? And I remember them giving me a tutorial one day, my two kids at that time, the two oldest anyway. And then I just got invested in it. I remember reaching out to people like uh, like a Ben Gilpin, a Joe Mazza, uh, you know, George Kuros is the one that got me into blogging. So again, it was the willingness to allow others to help you get better. So that's the question I ask. Who are you allowing to help you get better? And uh, again, trying to model that we're always going to be learners. We're a teaching and learning profession, so we should be willing to want to be the learner. And, and if for no other reason, Josh, is to remember this. It's actually going to help you. And I think grounds you to remind you what it feels like to be a kid who struggles in school. You know, as adults, sometimes it is hard for us to grasp the new things that we're not comfortable with. And yet, we this is what we ask kids to do every day. So part of it for me is just the modeling piece of demonstrating that you can still keep learning. And then to also to help the greater good. I mean, I know it's kind of Pollyannish a little bit, but I do want to help my profession. I want my profession to be great. Like, I don't like it when people talk negative about it. So... What role can I play in, in doing that, like blogging and doing Iowa Ed Chat for three years? I did that every Sunday night religiously. Like I did those because I wanted to help the profession. You know, when I first started doing this, I didn't expect, I tell people all the time, I spoke for 16 years and never got paid a penny to do it. 16 years. I gave workshops and presentations and volunteered for my state. No one ever paid me a penny. I never asked for a penny. And, and so, you know, I still remember the first time somebody said, well, how much do you charge? I'm like, mm, I have no idea. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't, right? I just do it. You know, that's the one thing, again, I have to remind myself today that I know I'm very blessed to be able to do what I do and be able to make a living at it. And at the same time, make an impact, I believe, in my profession and help other educators in the work that they do each and every day. I mean, I lived it. I get it. But at the same time, I'm still trying to learn. I'm still trying to stay active in schools. I do a lot of mentoring, a lot of coaching. And so I tell people every day, you know, I don't have a real job anymore. And so it gives me more time to be and allow myself to support others, right? And I tell people all the time, you know, I don't have a job. So uh, reach out when you need help and I'll do the best I can. You know, we're all busy and there's no doubt about that. We're just busy in different ways. But uh, it is still about the relationships to me. It always will be about the relationships to me. And hopefully I not only talk about it, hopefully people who know me believe that I show that to them too. I know you work with school districts to be future ready. Can you just take a moment to describe what that initiative is all about? Yeah, it's really, it's an initiative. I think now it's about five years old. It started with the Obama administration. It went through the Alliance for Excellent Education. I don't exactly know how all the ways that it started, but I know Governor Bob Wise was behind the initial uh, movement, I believe. 
Uh, they're a team of people. It's a nonprofit organization. And they developed a framework, a framework of what it meant to be future ready, right? So it's based on these gears and how do we build this community? But there's all these gears in it in terms of, and there's different strands, right? So there's like a leadership strand or a principal strand, I should say. There's like a central office strand. There's a teacher librarian strand, instructional coach strand, a technology strand. So there's these different strands, but it's it was really to support the idea of how can we help schools across the country and give them support and resources. So there's like a dashboard. So if you go to like futureready.org, there is resources there. There's a dashboard. And there's a team of people who I'm going to say we we put together institutes, right, to go across the country in different regions. And these conferences are free. So there's no charge. They're not there to try to sell you anything. And they have some really good partners and some really good sponsors to try to support to pay for the, some of this stuff so school districts don't have to pay so they can bring a team of people and hopefully, you know, surround themselves by other people that are trying to do similar things in this day and age of 2019 to try to take the, the world that we live in, the digital era that we live in and blend the best practices in terms of instruction. And then how do we support our schools again to, to strive for greatness, for excellence? Mm -hmm. And so, again, I uh, feel very blessed. Tom Murray is one of the people that leads that. There's several people, obviously, that do that. Yes, yeah, so now we just have a group. We just actually just met just a couple of weeks ago, and Deb Delisle was there, and so they kicked off Digital Day, Digital Leadership Day here in in D.C., and she was a part of that. And I got a chance to meet her, and I'm just I know we're excited. Governor Bob Wise was awesome, and now Deb Delisle taking over. I think is is just going to continue that on, and uh, and so it's really exciting to bring the, our team together and plan the institutes. They, they'll start in the fall. We'll start sometime, I believe, in September and go all the way through December in different regions. I think there's going to be about eight of them throughout the country. But futureready.org is the place to go to. And in closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership? For me personally, it's the opportunity, hopefully, to inspire others to want to go into leadership roles. Mm -hmm. I mean, the last thing we need is to, you know, I would say awfulize, right, to talk negatively about leadership. Because why would anyone want to go into this role then if we're telling everybody how hard it is and how long the hours are and how difficult it is and how challenging it is? And, you know, all these things that we sometimes focus on, I worry about them. What's the message that we're sending to other people about going to this leadership role? It's still the best role there is, in my opinion. And what an opportunity we have to influence our communities in really positive ways by showing people what leadership can look like and what we can do when we bring a group of people together, right? If we truly look at that in that way, and I always go back to this community of leaders, then I think, again, the opportunity to inspire others to be more and do more than ever thought than they ever thought possible, whether it's children or your staff or parents or a community, is something I feel very blessed in trying to do each and every day. And Jimmy, how can our listeners connect with you on social media? Well, you mentioned Twitter. Twitter, Boxer, and Instagram are all the same handle, Casas underscore Jimmy. Facebook is Culturized Jimmy Casas, and I have a blog they can look at and also get all that information, and that blog is jimmycasas.com. Or pick up the phone and just call me on my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> please continue to check out the Aspire podcast, and if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire Lead hashtag and you should continue the conversation on social media. Jimmy, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Josh, thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, again, for just the opportunity. And I just count my blessings every day. So I'm very, very grateful.